Hi everyone, this is Christian Weatherford. And this is Ellen Weatherford. And you're listening to Just the Zoo of Us, an animal podcast where we talk about and rate your favorite animals, sometimes our favorite animals, yeah. usually yours. <laughs> we try to make it about y'all sometimes, <laughs> but we have favorites too. We have opinions on animals, but that is not because we are experts. We're not zoologists, but we do a lot of research to make sure that we're giving you trustworthy information from reliable sources. Who's first this week, hon? I'm first. What animal do you bring as tribute? <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> I'm not presenting a sacrifice here. <laughs> this week, I'm talking about emus. Yay. The scientific name Dromaeus novi hollandii. That's quite a lot. So the second part of that scientific name, the novi hollandii, is a reference to New Holland, which was a historical European name for the continent of Australia. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Long, huh. long, long time ago, Europeans called it New Holland. Interesting. It's not that anymore. Emu was requested by Jude Collar. Thank you, Jude. Thanks for listening. And this information that I am... Basing my scores on today is from Animal Diversity Web as well as the Sydney Zoo. Oh, very yep. good. This emu, if you've never seen one before, this is a big bird. It's a really big bird. Their maximum height is about six foot two or 190 centimeters. Okay. But their average height is more around five foot nine. So that's 175 centimeters. A person. It's a little bit taller than me. Their average height is just a couple inches taller than me. Sure. They could max out at your height, though. You could be you could be toe-to-toe -to -toe with an emu. <laughs> they got better toes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. As both that name and also the source of my information would imply, they are found pretty much all over Australia. Really? Yeah, you can find them in most areas in mainland Australia. Now, their taxonomic family is called Casuaridae. Okay. <laughs> can you hear something in there that sounds familiar? Yeah. So from that family name, you can probably guess their closest relative. Mm -hmm. Cassowary. Yeah, it's cassowaries. There are three species of cassowaries. Oh, I know that. But only one of emus. Hmm. They're the only member of their genus. So both emus and cassowaries belong to a larger group of flightless birds, and these are called ratites. So ratites can actually be found all over the world. They're not just in Australia. And most of them are big. So the biggest of them is the ostrich. Right. So Makes sense. this is the one that is found in Africa. Emus are the second largest. Uh, other ratites include, like I said, cassowaries, uh, rheas, which are found in South America. Hmm. Also kiwis oh. found in New Zealand. Little kiwis. They are also ratites, even though they are little. Okay. They're little guys. So... I'm going to take a quick little detour to talk about ratites because it's really interesting. This is not emu specific, but we're taking a little detour into taxonomy town because this is really interesting. So it used to be assumed that since ratites, for the most part, cannot fly, they probably all originated on the supercontinent Gondwana. Hmm. So Gondwana used to make up the southern half of Pangaea. 
Okay. So Pangaea was made up of two supercontinents, Laurasia in the north and Gondwana in the south. So the current remnants of what used to be Gondwana now make up Africa, South America, Antarctica, Australia, the Indian subcontinent, Zealandia, so New Zealand and like the surrounding oh. area, and Arabia. So all of that was part of Gondwana. Okay. The theory was that ratites all started in this Gondwana supercontinent and when the continents split up and drifted apart, that's how the ratites dispersed across the globe because you see them everywhere in the world. And so it's just assumed like they cannot fly. There's no <laughs> right. way they could have gotten across those oceans. So they must have already been there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have wound up as dispersed as they are. I guess they're not very good swimmers either then. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly what they've strongly specced into. However, there was a family of giant ratites in Madagascar. And these were called elephant birds. <laughs> okay. They were they were bigger than ostriches. That's, they were huge. That's not good. They were actually the biggest bird that ever existed. They towered at up to three meters, which is 9.8 feet mm -hmm. tall. Uh, they went extinct within the last thousand years. And it's thought that that is because of human activity. Huh. Yeah. How dinosaur-like do you think they look? <laughs> Extremely. I mean, even, this, <laughs> even the current modern-day ratites look very dinosaur-like. <laughs> but so it, for the longest time, it was assumed that these elephant birds would have been most closely related to ostriches because they lived in Madagascar, which right. is next to Africa. And Africa and Madagascar split off from the rest of Gondwana, like first, before any of the other continents mm -hmm. did. So the assumption is that since they cannot fly, they had to have already been there when those continents split off. Sure. But then these scientists did these studies on the DNA of elephant birds from Madagascar. And what they found was that they were actually more closely related to kiwis from New Zealand okay. than they were to ostriches. And ostriches were not particularly close to kiwis or elephant birds. Hmm. So kiwis and elephant birds were more closely related to each other than either of them were to ostriches. Interesting. Yeah, very unexpected. Not what anyone thought. And then paired this with the information that this other species, there's this other extinct species of ratite from New Zealand that was called moa, and they're very big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're also huge, but they lived in New Zealand. So the idea was always that the ratites had some common ancestor in New Zealand that split off to form the moa and the kiwi. And then just over time, like that was how that worked out. But not so. The kiwis and the moas were not super closely related. The moas were more closely related to this type of bird in South America. They're called tinamous. Huh. Tinamous can fly. Oh. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're like considered part of the ratite group, but they can fly. Huh. Yeah. So that's when people were like, oh, ratites haven't always been flightless. They all came from a common ancestor that could fly. I wonder how they came to that conclusion rather than maybe they're still developing flight. <laughs> because they would have had to have been able to fly mm. to disperse between those continents like that. Oh, I see what you're getting at now. Okay. Yeah. So in order for the moa to have wound up 
in New Zealand when yeah. it did, it would have had to have flown. There's no way it could have gotten across. If they hadn't, they would just they would see more similarities between the various species that are spread across the globe. I guess. Right. Like you would expect them like if they were on the same continent, they would be closely related. Mm. But then you're seeing them related to things on different continents that there was no land mm. mass for them to cross over into. Okay. Yeah. So basically that like changed the entire way that people thought about ratites because the original idea was that they never did fly but now they're like oh they used to fly and then they gave up on it (laughs) like they they could fly and then they were like no they were just done with it these beefy legs instead i know so i thought that was really really cool so the implication is that all of these lineages of flightless ratites independently evolved flightlessness like on their own, completely <laughs> separately from the <laughs> others, they all decided they were like, you know what? Actually, flying isn't that important to us. <laughs> it's lame. I want to walk. I thought that was really cool. Um, so that study, by the way, that I mentioned, it's called "Ancient DNA Reveals Elephant Birds and Kiwi Are Sister Taxa and Clarifies Ratite Bird Evolution." That was published in Science Magazine in May of 2014. It has like a billion authors, so I'm not going to list them all. But if you want to read that study in more detail, that's where you can find it. I think it's interesting that despite having gone extinct a thousand years ago, they were still able to find DNA samples. That's cool. Yeah, it was very cool. It was a very cool study to read. So I know that was a long detour. Yes. (laughs) That was where I went, but I thought it was cool. (laughs) I thought y'all would want to know about it. So this brings us to our first category that we rate our animals on. This is effectiveness. This is your first time joining us. Effectiveness to us means the physical attributes that an animal has, the adaptations that it's made to its body to let it do a good job of the things it's trying to do. I give the emu a nine out of 10 for effectiveness. This is a good bird. So emus, like their ratite cousins, cannot fly, but like we just talked about, their ancestors could. So Mm -hmm. this naturally leads you to the question of why let go of a superpower like flight, right? Sure. Flight is a huge advantage. Like, why would you abandon that? So kind of like the leading theory on that is that their ancestors took to the skies to evade the large reptilian predators on the ground, including dinosaurs. So there were these much bigger threats on the ground that were threatening the birds. So they started flying so that they could get away from these predators. But when the mass extinction event occurred that wiped out like two thirds of animal species on the planet, that was about 66 million years ago. Mm -hmm. Those huge predators died and they weren't a problem anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So there were no longer these like huge threats on the ground. So the birds didn't have any reason to fly anymore. Hmm. They were like, okay, well, if it's kind of safe on the ground now, because keep in mind that like flight is very like energy taxing and it's, it it requires a lot of like energetic resources to do. So if you don't have to, why bother really, you know? Mm -hmm. So they just kind of over time, since there wasn't a reason for them to fly, they just kind of (laughs) stopped. And then since the parts of the body that were once used for flight weren't being used anymore, evolution just repurposed them to adapt back to life on the ground. So things like the keel on their sternum, and also, I mean, like the chest and pectoral muscles and the wings and stuff like that, all of those things that are kind of optimized in birds for flight in these ratites is like, they don't have the keel in their sternum, 
They don't really have much in the ter- in terms of pectoral muscles. They have wings, but they're essentially vestigial. <laughs> they're like <laughs> tiny little little chicken wings. So they've kind of gotten rid of all those things and in favor of things like really bulky, powerful legs and strong feet and strong bones. So speaking of powerful legs, the emu is the only bird with calf muscles. Huh. They have calf muscles and other birds don't. Interesting. It is very interesting. So they're really strong and their kicks can prove fatal to potential predators like dingoes. Dingoes are kind of right now like the only thing that could step to an emu. Um, There used to be some larger carnivores in Australia, but they've gone extinct. Things like the thylacine, stuff like that, that... Maybe was a bigger threat at some point, but is no longer. Hmm. Dingoes could could bother emus, but not with a swift kick to the jaw. So they will be fine. <laughs> Do they tussle with crocodiles? I don't know. I didn't see that particularly referenced. Okay. I bet if they did, the emu would be fast enough to get away from a crocodile. Yeah, yeah. I think with a good like kick run combo, I think an emu could easily evade a crocodile. Sure. That's actually a good segue into the next thing i wanted to talk about them they have these three forward facing toes with no backward facing toes a lot of times you see birds with like a toe arrangement that has one or two toes facing backwards Mm -hmm. they have none they just have the three that are facing forward so this helps them dig into the ground and push them forward so this makes them really good runners so they're first of all very fast they can sprint at up to 56 kilometers per hour or 35 miles per hour at, hmm. that's a sprint um if they're taking it a little bit easier they can run for up to 40 minutes so they can be pretty good endurance runners too that's if they're not sprinting like at their normal speed they can sustain running for a pretty long time. Uh, they are, You asked if they would fight with crocodiles. They're pretty decent swimmers when they need to be. Oh, okay. Emus can swim if they have to. I don't see why they would want to, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just, you got to do what you got to do. Um, so something interesting about the way that they run is that emus, well, this is not specific to emus, but like other birds, they have what's called a nictitating membrane. Mm-hmm. So this is a thin, transparent eyelid. And rather than it going up and down like our eyelids, it goes from the inside of the eyeball to the outside of the eyeball. It goes like horizontally across the eyeball. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this kind of acts as goggles <laughs> to keep like dust and bugs and stuff out of their eyes. Let's them run around in sandy places without worrying too much about their eyeballs. I think all birds have a nictitating membrane. If it's not all of them, then at least the vast majority of birds have this. This Hmm. is like a normal thing for birds to have. Not specific to emus. I just thought it was cool to mention. Or specific to birds for that matter. Yeah. Reptiles have it. Fish have it. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things have it. It's not that special, but it's still interesting. (laughs) We don't have it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Suck. (laughs) They also have these shaggy brown feathers. Uh, This is pretty much only meant to protect their skin from the sun that keeps them from roasting. (laughs) They get soft. Are the feathers soft? Yeah. They don't look soft. I don't think they do, at least. I guess you probably wouldn't want to find out anyway, but... (laughs) (sighs) We haven't talked about aggression yet, so... Or lack thereof. Well, we'll get there. Um, So they have wings, but their wings are really tiny and they really don't do anything, so they're kind of negative. They barely count as wings. They, they flap? 
A little bit. Maybe a communication it's, thing. It's not really. <laughs> it's it's not particularly cute. They're kind of essentially vestigial. They don't okay. really do anything. Emus can store a lot of fat in their body. It lets them go for weeks at a time without food, which is especially important for something that I'm going to talk about in a minute in ingenuity. So we'll get there. Just right. keep in mind, they can store fat on their body and go a long time without eating. Got it. Same. <laughs> <laughs> so i i did give them a nine out of ten instead of a ten out of ten here's my deduction emus can't walk backwards at all dang just can't do it <laughs> can't do it this is referenced actually by the coat of arms of australia oh so the coat of arms of australia depicts both a kangaroo and an emu and the reasoning behind this is that neither of those animals can walk backwards oh it's supposed to symbolize like progressing forward like a commitment to (laughs) always moving forward because you can't go backwards okay yeah (laughs) we won't retreat because we can't (laughs) (laughs) physically can't well it's funny you say that we'll come back to that (laughs) that's foreshadowing for something later (laughs) And then one thing that's like sort of a deduction, but I feel like it's made up for in ingenuity is that so they're omnivores. They'll eat pretty much anything, but they have no teeth and they also don't have very strong like internal structures to grind food, Mm -hmm. but they're eating things that need to be ground up. So they can't even really properly digest a lot of things that they eat, but they make up for that by swallowing rocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard of this before. Yeah, so we've actually talked about this. I think we talked about it with axolotls do this. Um, they can't grind up their food in their belly, so they digest. They swallow rocks, and the rocks mash up the food inside of their stomachs. This is called a gastrolith. A gastrolith mm-hmm. is a rock that you swallow to help you, you know, move things along in your tummy. Some dinosaurs did that too, didn't they? Probably. Yeah. Well, emus, <laughs> like all birds, are dinosaurs. Yes. So, yes, dinosaurs, they did and they still do, Christian. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you dinosaurs are dead. They're still here. This brings us to the next category of ingenuity. This for us is behavioral adaptations that give an animal kind of an edge, make it good at solving problems, strategies it uses, clever things it does. For ingenuity, I give the emu a 7 out of 10. Not bad. It's okay. It's all right. So emus are typically solitary, but they're willing to play nice and group up into these bigger flocks to travel when they need to do things like look for food or water sources. Mm -hmm. They'll get together and all travel in a big flock. They communicate with each other using some really interesting and I think unexpected vocalizations. So when you see a bird, I think you have an expectation of what that bird is probably going to sound like. This is like all of their vocalizations are really low pitched. Mm. They're more so the the descriptive words used to describe their the noises that they make are things like booming rumbling drumming and it really does sound like that Mm. um it doesn't sound like a voice you know it sounds percussive it's a very deep like thundering sort of sound right where you're not so much hearing it as you are feeling it yeah it's very it's very interesting it's not a sound that i think you'd expect to hear from a bird and i think to me it really hammers the point home that like this is a live dinosaur (laughs) (laughs) it's a living dinosaur and it is making these like explosive sounds 
very cool to hear. My next point is that they are great dads. Oh. They're fantastic dads. It's all about daddy. <laughs> <laughs> the emus are really, emu dads are killing it. So so first of all, the male builds the nest. Hmm. He builds his own nest out of like dead grasses and leaves and stuff like that. Obviously, it's a very large nest. And then the female comes by, mates with the male, and then lays her eggs in his nest. And then she leaves forever. (laughs) She's not coming back. (laughs) She is done. So she goes off and she mates with more males and lays more eggs. So, like, she's off doing her thing. The male stays behind with the eggs and he incubates them. So he sits on the eggs and warms them for about 50 days. Wow. And during this time... He does not eat, drink, or poop. He what? just takes care of the eggs and that's it. He doesn't do anything <laughs> else. He does not leave the nest. He just takes care of the eggs. Oh. But he's not just sitting on the eggs, so he's protecting it from mm. threats. He will chase off other emus, including the mother of the chicks. <laughs> so if she comes back, he's like, uh-uh, we got this covered. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> you had a chance. <laughs> I'll go on get. <laughs> yeah. So he'll chase mom away and, and he's protecting the eggs. He also turns them, like oh. turns them over to make sure that they're like evenly warmed and make sure every egg is being like evenly incubated so that they'll all hatch at the same time. Mm-hmm. He does this multiple times per day. Like oh. every few hours, he's like turning each egg over to make sure it's getting <laughs> evenly warmed. How, how many eggs are we talking about? I think it said around 10 eggs. Okay. At a time, I think. Oh, and the eggs are really cool. Yeah. First of all, they're huge, naturally, because mm-hmm. it's a really big bird. The eggs are green. Have you ever seen an emu egg? No. Aren't cassowary eggs also green or maybe yeah. blue? They're also green. Okay. But yeah, a really beautiful green with like a speckly sort of look to yeah. it. Very cool. So he takes care of the eggs, and then once the babies hatch, he stays with them. And he teaches them how to forage. He protects them. He takes really good care. They follow him around everywhere he goes. (laughs) There are all sorts of videos on YouTube that you can see of, like, a whole... whole little flock of baby emus following around daddy (laughs) it's very cute (laughs) and he takes care of them until they're fully grown they typically leave their dad at around six months and then they go off and do their own thing but yeah so great dads i really (laughs) had to give them points for that i thought that was really nice uh they do have a personality about them they're very curious Like you mentioned aggressive earlier and they can be really aggressive, especially if it's a male who has a nest, he will throw down immediately (laughs) um, if they're feeling particularly turd. And they can be aggressive towards each other, especially when they're competing over mates or stuff like that. Mm. But they're very curious. So there's videos all over the internet of emus just kind of interacting inquisitively with not just humans, but like other animals. They seem to really like dogs. <laughs> okay. They will like play with toys. They <laughs> are so what they like to do is they'll go up to something, they'll circle it while kind of looking at it curiously, and then they'll give it a quick peck with their beak and like kind of just mm, see what's going to happen. Like they're <laughs> they're they're very curious. Um, unfortunately, this this can often put them in really dangerous situations, especially when they find themselves playing in roads yeah. or playing in people's yards that might not be too keen on having an emu running around in their yard. So they can kind of put themselves in danger this way. A lot of these videos show emus exhibiting mating displays towards humans. 
Oh. Attempting to court them. Oh, no. This happens frequently. (laughs) (laughs) So emus are not super great at telling emus apart from humans. (laughs) You think the tourism guide says how to turn down an emu? (laughs) (laughs) Like how to let it down gently. (laughs) Maybe we're better as friends. Like, (laughs) Um, That's everything I gave it for ingenuity. I thought they were pretty. They have some interesting behaviors. Very cool birds. Nice. Not like the smartest ever, but... Still pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, This brings us to aesthetics. This is self-explanatory. This is just how nice I think the animal looks. I give them a 5 out of 10. I don't think emus are cute. Hmm. I've seen them in person many times. I've never thought... (laughs) I have never seen one that I thought was cute. What about the babies? Okay, the babies are cute. But that's not fair. (laughs) What are the babies like? They're stripey. Stripey, okay. Yeah, they're like yellow with black stripes. Okay. And the babies are fluffy from head to toe. They're just so cute. But the grown-ups are gross. (laughs) They're all like, they definitely look like dinosaurs. But the the fluffy feathers around them Mm -hmm. really makes it not look tough or cool. (laughs) So it's like, you've got halfway looking tough and cool halfway looking fluffy and cute and combined together i really don't think it's a very successful look okay (laughs) i don't think they're cute i'm sorry uh wrapping up with miscellaneous information about emus their conservation status is of least concern okay they're fine my closing piece for the emu is a story i'd like to tell you oh boy and i'm getting this information from australian geographic in my words (laughs) So since emus are omnivorous, their search for food often leads them to farmers' crops. So they will go find a farm, eat up all the farmers' veggies and fruits and such. And the farmers did not like it. So in 1932, farmers in Western Australia had had enough of the emus. They were totally done with them. They asked for help from the Minister of Defense, Uh George Pierce. And troops were deployed from the Australian military to wipe out the emus. They were armed with machine guns. (laughs) Machine guns. They sent the military Uh into these farms to kill the emus. The troops get out there with their machine guns. They begin to fire on this flock of emus that they had found. And they quickly found that the emus were seemingly indestructible. Oh. Yeah. Oh, in what way? In all of possible ways. So first of all, they were fast enough to evade fire. It was very difficult to hit them. And then even when they were hit by the bullets, they were fine. What? Like, they were, like, not that injured by it. Like, it was not that big a deal. They would just keep going, even though they'd just been shot with a machine gun. So the troops were recalled after one week, having killed only between 50 and 200 emus. They tried again a few days later. They had slightly more success, but ultimately found that there was simply no way that they were going to prevail against the emus with military forces. Major G.P.W. Meredith, who was the commander of this force at the time, described the emus saying, If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. (laughs) They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. (laughs) They gave up because they could not kill the birds with their machine guns. (laughs) And that is the story of the emu's military victory over Australia. 
Yeah, people forget about that between the the first and second world wars. <laughs> there was the Emu War, which is what it's called, by the way. It's called the Emu War. So eventually they introduced more of like a culling practice where I guess the government issued a bounty, basically, where you could like kill an emu and turn it in for like a monetary incentive. Mm-hmm. And I killed that. People killed a lot of emus for that. They killed like 200,000 emus for this money. Well, that was over like a couple of decades. Sure. So it was like stretched out over a long period of time. But even after all that, their populations are still doing okay. Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like that kind of factored into my effectiveness score because these birds cannot be bothered in any way. (laughs) They really don't care about what humans have going on at all. How tall did you say they were? About 6'2". Oh, no, a 12-foot tall fence. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I couldn't find what their jump height is. I couldn't find any stats on how high they can jump. I just assume double should handle it. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably fine. Unless they climb it. I guess that's an option. I don't think they can climb at all. That's true. They don't have anything to grab with. It's just their two feet. Yeah. But that's the time that Australia declared war on emus and lost. History is weird. Yep. And that's the end of the emu segment for today. Thanks, honey. Thank you. Hey, friends. Before we move on, you're about to hear a couple of quick ads. These ads generate revenue, 100% of which is donated to wildlife conservation efforts all over the world. We are able to keep making this show because of support from our patrons on Patreon. This week, I want to thank... Jacob Jones, April Kamik, Brianna Feinberg, Gina Dimitri, Jacob Schick, Vikram Baliga, Britt Vikstrom, Dalton Weeks, Julie Gilson, Christina Sanders, Sarah Peterson, and the Jungle Gym Queen. Thanks, y'all. So, darling, what you got for us this week? Well, a little birdie told me it's Shark Week. It is. So I went with my favorite shark, the whale shark. It's such a good one. It's a good shark. Species name, Rincidon typus. Rincidon? R-H-I-N-C-O-D-O-N. Okay. Don't know if that's correct pronunciation. It's probably fine. It's my best and first shot. My new <laughs> my new thing is just saying them very confidently. <laughs> pretending like I'm definitely right. And probably nobody's going to say anything about yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this species was submitted by Julie Gilson and Eric Parton. Thanks, y'all. Getting my information from two places. One, a place very near and dear to us, the Georgia Aquarium, Woo-woo. website georgiaaquarium.org, as well as Animal Diversity Web, website animaldiversity.org. The best. One other uh, citation in there, but I'll bring it up for the specific thing it's about. No spoilers. Yeah. So, whale shark, we've seen them in person. We have. At the Georgia Aquarium. We've been very lucky to see them. Yes. It is one of the few places in the world where they're kept captive. The Georgia Aquarium, which we've talked about before, I believe in the manta ray episode, is the largest aquarium in the United States. And I believe the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I think it's the biggest on the side of the world. Yeah. A little bit of facts for those that maybe aren't familiar with it. It's the largest living fish. Mm. Not just the largest shark, but largest fish. They're so big. Mm-hmm. Gosh, they're huge. Speaking of huge, their average length is between five and a half and 10 meters, which is between 18 and 32.8 feet. Newborns are 53 to 64 centimeters long oh. or 21 to 25 inches. Oh, they're <laughs> just two feet long. <laughs> they get big. <laughs> they do. 
The largest accurately measured whale shark was 18.8 meters or 61.7 feet long. Goodness. To put that to scale, a standard city bus is around 14 meters long or 46 feet long. So longer than a standard bus. Yes. Goodness. <laughs> what a fish. Yeah, big and they have wide, flat heads. They have relatively small eyes on the side of their heads. Dark gray with white spots on their backs. The best part. Yeah, very pretty. And they have a white underside. So we see this kind of coloration in sharks and other sea creatures a lot. Kind of lighter shading on the bottom and a darker on top. Yes. Yeah, so the idea is that no matter whether you're looking at it from above or below, it mm -hmm. always blends in with a background. So if you're looking at it from below, you're seeing the white belly against the white sky. Yeah. And if you're looking at it from above, you're seeing a dark blue or a dark gray or whatever yeah, against the dark yeah. ocean. Yeah, and I think they're interesting because those spots on their back have a really interesting... It plays interesting with light. That, mm -hmm. That's kind of refracting off the water surface as well. Yeah. It's really neat. It does mimic like the way that the light is interacting with the waves. Yeah. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah, I like it. Well, I'll talk about where they're found. So they can be found worldwide in the tropical Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, usually between about 30 degrees north and 35 degrees south. Give some idea of what, where that is, we here in Northeast Florida are right at about 30 degrees north. Oh, okay. So if we just head straight out of the ocean, we would we might see one. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are usually out at like out in the ocean. They'll sometimes come close to the shore, but they're usually out in like the middle of the ocean. I imagine they're, they're just too big. <laughs> they're migratory. Okay. So I mentioned where they're usually found, but they can be they, they have been spotted beyond those limitations. Sure. Like I saw one one was found off the coast of I think it was like Pennsylvania or something. Sometimes you gotta go rogue. <laughs> Gotta go see the world. Yeah. Their taxonomic family is Rensodontidae. They are the only species and genus in that family. Wow. They're pretty unique, huh? Yeah. Their order is the Erectolobiforms. Also contains zebra sharks, nurse sharks, and wabagong sharks. Okay. Yes, I know these. <laughs> you can kind of see that resemblance in their head, mm -hmm. I think. Especially with zebra sharks. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of overlap there. Yeah. And they, I guess, maybe I never noticed this, but whale sharks have very small barbells on their nose. Barbells? Those little, in other sharks, they're, they're really pronounced. I'm trying to think how to describe this with words. <laughs> Is it like the dangly bits on the yeah. sides of the head? Well, like, like what you would see on like the front of a manta ray? No. Well, no. I mean, those might be described as barbells, but in sharks, they're kind of like coming off the nostrils. Okay. Of, yeah. All right. I think I get what you're going yeah. for. So I'm going to jump right into our first category of effectiveness. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and give a full 10 out of 10. Okay. <laughs> it's a good, good fish. <laughs> so first and foremost, their size. Uh, Unparalleled. <laughs> among the fish world, yes. When they're fully grown, they pretty much don't have to worry about natural predators. They don't have to worry about anything at all. <laughs> Just put loose and fancy free out there. I mean, but when they're smaller, more medium sized, they still have to worry about very large sharks and orcas. That's about it. Orcas have attitude. I wouldn't be surprised if they would <laughs> if they would step to a whale shark. Yeah. I bet they yeah. would do it. They would probably pot up too. Orcas are the worst. <laughs> they're so mean. Well, there's the thing too. The the in terms of defense, pretty much its size is all it has going for it. But also being a shark, it has tough skin. 
So their skin in some places is as thick as four inches. Whoa, yeah. that's so much. Yeah. yeah. And how long is an orca whale's tooth? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that i forget now i want to say it was six seven inches yeah oh no <laughs> but still that's a lot to get through yeah so i'll talk a little bit more about their skin here in a bit but next i wanted to talk about the way they eat so being the largest shark and fish you might think oh they're just sculping down other slightly smaller fish but not so they are filter feeders so they eat some of the smallest organisms in the ocean that's funny the way that that works because like You'd think once you get to that size, you can eat whatever you want. But they're like, no, I'm going to stick with these what are essentially kernels of rice. <laughs> so, yeah, they eat things like plankton, very small things. So I'm going to read a quotation from the Georgia Aquarium on how they filter feed. A whale shark filters food from the water by cross-flow filtration, which means the particles do not catch on the filter. Rather, water is directed away through the gills, while particles, which have more momentum, carry on towards the back of the mouth in an ever more concentrated stream. A bolus, or spinning ball, of food grows in diameter at the back of the throat until it triggers a swallowing reflex. This is very efficient and does not clog the filters. Huh. Yeah. So they're just amassing food until it's big enough to even bother <laughs> swallowing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That is. Do they have teeth like at all? They do. Okay. So they do have very small teeth, lots of them, but they're not thought to help with how they eat at all. What are they for then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> May have been used at one point. Yeah. Maybe they're just vestigial teeth. <laughs> Their throat is very small, about the size of a quarter. What? Yeah. Nuh uh. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're massing this plankton into a, like a, a ball in the back of their throat. And uh huh. Then, and then they swallow it. Huh. Yeah. What is the rest of it then? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm thinking about how big their mouth is. It's all for catching the food. That's it. Okay. So, uh, so they might seem a little intimidating in that, oh, they look like they could still swallow a person if they wanted to, but not really. Oh, gosh. So even if you did get like caught in their mouth somehow. You can get stuck in their mouth, I guess, but that's as far as you're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying almost. <laughs> Next, I wanted to talk about their swim speed. When feeding at the surface, two knots or 2.3 miles per hour <laughs> is how fast they move, which is it's, about a typical walking pace. It's leisurely. Yeah. They are not booking it, y'all. They're, they're, they're just, <laughs> they are. They're just taking a stroll. Cruising speed is two and a half knots or 2.9 miles per hour. They can move faster in short bursts, but that's about it. So like I mentioned, the biggest thing they have going for them is their size. This is a tank. <laughs> They're not thought to be able to breach the water, unlike the basking shark. Oh. Yeah. So the basking shark is another filter feeding shark that's very large. I want to say it's the second largest. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I love basking sharks so much. <laughs> ah. I mean, well, shark also, though, for yes, real. but it's more flat. <laughs> They're more like, eh. And the, and the basking shark is like, aw. <laughs> Excellent. Great podcast material. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, I want to talk about their skin a little bit more. I'll talk about dermal denticles. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to let everybody know that the other day when we were talking about this, you asked me if they were pronounced denticles. <laughs> and I had to think about it. <laughs> I was like, are they? <laughs> so what these are, basically small skin teeth that cover most of their body. Skin teeth. Yes. Great. 
Uh, this is pretty common in sharks. Mm-hmm. It kind of gives them that sandpapery feel. But only like in one direction. If you're moving your hand from their head to their tail. It still doesn't feel smooth. But It's not completely smooth, <laughs> but you know, it's like it's yeah. not going to mess your hand up. But if you go the other way, it's like yeah. going to tear your hand up. It's been a while since I've touched a shark. I've never touched a whale shark. Me neither. Most people shouldn't, by the way. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. <laughs> shark week. Very protected. Anyway. So this helps with protection and also swimming faster. Makes them more aqua dynamic. Hydrodynamic. There, it is. there you go. That was so close. <laughs> <laughs> a while back, I talked to Dr. Catherine McDonald, who studies sharks. Yeah. And she went into a lot of detail about those denticles yes. and mentioned that swimsuits that like Olympic swimmers use uh-huh. are made with these structures on them that are similar to the denticles found on sharks and that they were inspired by the skin of sharks because it makes them flow through the water faster don't they only wear speedos though for males i suppose (laughs) there's still fabric on the speedo (laughs) but it's like 10 percent of their surface area (laughs) okay well you still if you're gonna have 10 percent of your surface area covered you want it to be as hydrodynamic as possible i'm just hoping it doesn't feel like that on the inside why would it though (laughs) (laughs) continuing on (laughs) somewhat related i want to talk about their eyes how could that possibly be related christian (laughs) well here's my other source i mentioned there's a research article titled Armored Eyes of the Whale Shark. Authors of this article include Tomita T, Murakumo K, Komoto S, Dove A, Kino M, Miyamoto K, et al. <laughs> et al. has done some great work. <laughs> and this was published in 2020, earlier this year. This is fresh, y'all. So first and foremost, they do not have eyelids. None. Which is peculiar. Well, maybe not so peculiar. And sharks. I, yeah, it's not. So, I don't think about eyelids when I think about sharks. Well, lots of sharks have some mechanism to protect their eyes when they are usually biting something. Sure. So, for example, great white sharks, they will roll their eyes back in the head, basically. They do not have eyelids, but they do have tentacles that cover a large portion of their eyes. Now you're saying you're saying denticles with a d as yes. in dog. You are not yes. saying tentacles Correct. as in <laughs> what a squid has. Yes, this is not some weird Cthulhu monster. <laughs> um so yeah, they have these the same all, kind of the same kind of denticles that cover the rest of their body covers a lot of the surface of their eye. They're a little different though, because um, they're mainly designed for protection and not really hydrodynamics. But also they can retract their eyes into their head. Why would you ever want or need to do that? <laughs> well, because take a, take a look at a whale shark. Uh-huh. Its eyes are pretty much right there on the side. Like, <laughs> if they bump into something, that's an eyeball. That's Why be- put the <laughs> eyes there then? <laughs> well, it's, the idea is it gives it a wide field of vision. Okay. Yeah. Well, you just have an answer for everything, <laughs> don't you? Someone did. <laughs> But yeah, it's crazy. So they have this armor, but also they can retract into the head slightly. Well, I should say at least the diameter of the eyeball can sink into the head. This is an armored turret. (laughs) It has a little turret that can... (laughs) Um, Thus ends the effectiveness category. Okay, that's very good. On to ingenuity. It's given a 6 out of 10. It's decent. Yeah. They're normally solitary, though aggregations have been observed largest of which is called the Afuera, off Isla Contoy in the Mexican Caribbean. Interesting. 420 individuals (laughs) 
in an area of 18 square kilometers have been observed there. Wow, that's so many. A lot. And my next ingenuity point I want to talk about is their feeding methods. So we talked about the mechanics behind it, but here's what they do with it. Uh, so they have two types of feeding. There's active suction feeding and vertical suction feeding. So with active suction feeding, I think it's one that you probably think of most when you see videos of them. So this is where they're moving along in a normal orientation, just feeding like that. Yep. With a vertical suction feeding, they're staying still and are semi-vertical. What? Yeah. How do they <laughs> get like that? I think it depends on food concentrations. Okay. Because if they find like a big old thing of food in one spot, I think they'll do the latter. Okay. So are they like diving down underneath and then like coming up from below? Uh, I mean, initially, yes, but okay. they, they, they'll probably stay there and do their suctioning thing. Okay. All right. Um, so, which brings me to my next point that both involve opening and closing the mouth to create suction. Ah, okay, yes. I understand. Yeah, which you'll probably see this with a video of them, or if you see them in person ever. Uh, my final ingenuity point is around the ability to learn. In captivity, when a keeper appears with food, they learn that that's happening and what it means, and they swim in tight circles around the feeding area. <laughs> They're ready for that lunch. For sure. And in the wild, they've been observed investigating the nets of fishermen who are targeting small fish. Which I should probably mention, plankton is not the only thing they eat. Okay. It's pretty much other fish and like crustacean larvae that would also fit in their mouth. I guess whatever can fit in their little <laughs> pinhole. <laughs> and on to our final category of aesthetics. Once again, a full 10 out of 10. Mm, it does. It really doesn't get better than a good whale shark. They're beautiful. They're just so big and beautiful. They're large and humbling in my experience. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the Georgia Aquarium, you know, huge huge tank of water but when you see them there you just it's it's hard to get an idea of scale unless you're standing right there yeah and they do have one of those cool types of tanks that has like a tunnel that you can yes. go through and they're like swimming over your head and they're just i mean i find because not only are they so huge and also they just look so like they're friend shaped and they're just, <laughs> they have that really pleasant face you know with the eyes wide apart big smiling mouth but they also just like the way that they just vibe they just like <laughs> leisurely stroll slowly swim through the water they're not worried about anything they're not stressing they got no bills to pay <laughs> they're just like living and they, like it just makes me feel peaceful. Yeah, they're so good. They are very good. Great, great fish. I would say their movements are even graceful. Like just kind of watching them. Yeah, it is really nice. Yeah. And like we mentioned earlier, the that back pattern is very pleasing to the eye. Yeah, and when you're so when in the Georgia Aquarium, typically they're swimming at the top of the water, which is obviously very far over yeah. your head. So what's really cool is seeing them from that angle. Is that the spots, those bright white spots, reflect in the top of the water. Yeah, because like the surface of the water, looking at it from the bottom, is basically a mirror. Yeah, and so the spots are reflected mm -hmm. in the water above you, and that is really cool. Which is good, because that would be the only way for most visitors to see that. Because they're, yeah. not, they're not, like, doing barrel rolls and stuff. No. So. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're you just seeing their belly mostly. Yeah. Um. Sometimes, like, when they're far enough away, sometimes they'll kind of dive into the water a little bit. 
but you're typically just going to be seeing their belly. Yeah. Some other closing information. Their conservation status is endangered with the IUCN. Oh. So they went from vulnerable to endangered in 2016. Wow. Yes. Things that they are uh, susceptible to are fishnets, boat strikes, because, you know, they like to swim at the surface because that's where plankton is often found. Sure. Marine debris and microplastics and human interaction. I'm imagining now that microplastics would probably contribute to clogging up that little throat pinhole. Or they'll swallow it and it just... You know, yeah. clogs up their digestive tract. Sure. And the thing with the human interaction, so one, they're hunted in some parts of the world oh. as a delicacy. Oh, okay. But also a lot, of, a lot of parts of the world have unregulated tourism that involves them. Huh. Um, yeah. Like yeah. going out and chilling with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll see some pretty awful videos from time to time. Like one that comes to mind was these, these guys on a boat found a whale shark and decided to surf on top of it. No. Yeah. You don't need to do that. Yeah, not great. No. Don't touch. <laughs> don't touch. Yeah, view from a distance. Yeah, love them from a healthy and respectful distance. Back to the whole whale comparison. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are not whales. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> Although, I think we've, we've mentioned they are sharks. Yeah. So they are fish. Yes. Not whales. Not whales. Whales are mammals. <laughs> Different. Hey, there's kids that listen to this that might not know. Yeah, you're right. Whales are mammals, just but, like people. But the name, I believe, comes from one, their size, and two, their filter feeders, like a lot of baleen whales are. Yeah, very similar dynamic. Mm -hmm. Just swimming around with your mouth open. Yep, big animals eating very small animals. <laughs> it's very funny to me. I'm like, why did you need to get so big? <laughs> I mean, the blue whale. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I want to talk about the reproduction a little bit. So they are ovoviviparous. Every, every time this one trips you up. <laughs> yes. Uh, meaning the embryo is formed within an egg, which then hatches in the mother's uterus. Only one litter size has ever been documented. It was a result of catching a pregnant female. Interesting. Here's what surprised me. And it I think you may have audibly heard me say what. The other day. <laughs> that single litter size that has ever been documented was more than 300 pups what hold on what <laughs> have they not been like bred in captivity nope not only have they never bred in captivity but they've never mate in captivity really yeah they're just not feeling it an argument can be made probably about stress factors or something but because yeah. <laughs> they are normally solitary creatures that live out in the ocean true like, sure 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 but uh 300 yeah. though and you said they're two feet long yep. each that's 600 feet of babies <laughs> i know you said they're like pretty big uh -huh. but 600 feet of babies is pushing it it's a lot that's too <laughs> i would argue that's too many babies well so that's that's the only time it's ever been observed so who knows that could be average <laughs> that could be below average what if, what if they usually have like five <laughs> And yeah. just this one, the one we ever saw, was like off the chain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, good lord! Not a lot of data exists around their rep reproductions. That's the beauty of marine biology and like <laughs> ocean life, because even something as incomprehensibly large as a whale shark, yeah, we could have so little information on because we're like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're just so cryptic, and it's thought. I mean, this again, not a lot of data on this, but it's thought they don't reach sexual maturity until they're thirty years old. Oh gosh, yeah. wow, yeah. but. Sounds like once they hit 30, they're just <laughs> cranking them out. Hopefully. I mean, 
Um, so yeah, they'll they'll give birth to these pups that are pretty much at that stage fully developed, and they're on their way. Bye. Um, and the pups are very rarely found too. Uh, just before this, we were looking at a picture of one. They're fr- they're pretty cute. So cute. <laughs> but I will say this. Yes, they are super cute, but they really do kind of just look like a normal giant adult whale shark that you just scaled down to two (laughs) feet long. So it's just kind of that like feeling that you get when something is just cute because it's smaller than it normally is. You see like a tiny (laughs) cupcake or something. You're like, I would say their proportions are a little different, too, because like I feel like the tapering of their body is more drastic as as when they're young. Because it's more true. gradual when they're adults. Well, good. You're so cute. They look like a little tear. <laughs> they look like a teardrop. <laughs> they're swimming so, around. They're good. I know they're so sweet. Three hundred is too many, though. <laughs> and it's like they're they were at varying stages too. Like some were more done than others. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things they found was uh, based on DNA analysis of all these pups, it was all the same father. So. Aww. So something else that we talked to Dr. McDonald about was the different ways that sharks have pups. Mm-hmm. Um, so this ovoviviparous is when they have, like you said, they have the egg, but the egg is inside of the mother, but she's not supplying it with anything. There's no right. like umbilical cord or something like the baby is developing separately from the mother's body. Yeah. It's not the same as like a pregnancy where you're like the mother's body is supplying the baby with yeah. nutrients. Like the baby is off doing its own thing separately. Just mom is keeping yep. the egg safe inside of her belly. Yep. And then when the, Oh, we're recording during a thunderstorm. So that's very Florida. Of us. It is. <laughs> But yeah, so it's it's just like another mm-hmm. way. So there's like all these different ways that sharks can have pups. And that's just one of them. Yeah. And with these, they each have their own uh, yolk sack. Mm. Oh, they're so cute. <laughs> they're so good. But the adults are cute too. They are. They're they start off precious. cute and then they get cuter. Yep. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're protected in many places and by many laws. Here's hoping they do better. Let's all be nice to whale sharks in honor of Shark Week. Yes. Leave them alone. Don't touch them. Be nice. Oh. <laughs> I wonder if the mic picked that up. Who knows? <laughs> I guess you I will tomorrow <laughs> when I edit this. Hi, Tuesday, Ellen. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, baby. That was really nice. Thanks, hon. I like these fish. Thank you, not only to Christian for talking about the cool whale shark today, but to everybody who has joined us and listened to us today. Really appreciate you spending your time with us. Thanks for hanging out with us. Always a pleasure. Always. I love our one-way conversations. (laughs) (laughs) You're all such good listeners. (laughs) If you want this conversation to be two-way, you can connect with us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search the title of the show and you'll find us. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us talk about, you can submit those to us like our friends Jude and Julie and Eric did today. You can submit those to us either on social media, just shoot us a message or comment or whatever, and I promise we'll see it. You can also email them to me. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. Finally, I'd like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides. Yes, thank you so much. We are recording this in a thunderstorm right now, so you may be hearing a little bit of bonus background noise. (laughs) I'm already sleepy. (laughs) I know. It sounds very much like the noise machine we use to go to sleep. (laughs) 
but it'll, it'll sound really nice with the outro music, which is fading in right now. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>